0: This afternoon, I thought I'd elaborate a little bit more on attitude. Checking the attitude and what it helps reveal. As we check what's the attitude what's the relationship to experience it can help to expose something which we might not have seen before expose hidden agendas attitudes habits reactivity that's kind of below the level of our conscious awareness and so that the the function of checking the attitude is is kind of to Shake our mind from its habitual way of relating, and and say, "Oh, wait! Is there something else? Is there is there some other thing going on in the back of my mind?" And so this uh, serves a couple of purposes. I mean, it 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 begins to uh, reveal these hidden. Um, threads of reactivity or, it doesn't even have to be reactivity, it can just be an agenda. Which may be kind of driving or subconsciously informing our choices. And so when we don't see what's happening below this level of our conscious awareness. Those uh, functions, those states of mind are kind of, they have the power to uh, run the show, to drive the choices we make. As we see what's happening So, one one t- something Saito Utegeniya s- says sometimes is that the um... the kilesa, the defilement, is the word that's usually translated as... kilesa is usually translated as defilement. I, I don't like that word. Um... reactive state, perhaps, or hindrance. But it is basically something that is um, not so helpful. It is an unwholesome, unhelpful quality that is in our mindstream, And when it's not seen, when it's below the surface of our conscious awareness, it is functioning as an unwholesome quality, as a defilement, as something that is polluting <laughs> our mind stream, polluting our choices, making bad decisions for us. So when it's not seen, it functions as something really unhelpful, really, really unhelpful in our, in our lives. But as soon as we see it, so this, this checking the attitude, as soon as we see those hidden agendas, hidden beliefs, hidden views, hidden reactivity, it's like it comes out from the background, and we are able now to see it. I sometimes like to use an analogy of like if we're wearing sunglasses or different colored glasses we have those sunglasses on and if we wear them for a long time we might not be uh, so cognizant that our um, vision is dimmed or colored by those glasses we're just looking through that filter it's like a filter on our vision and so we're not so aware of it but we're looking around and everything's colored gray like, okay, this is the way things are. Things are grey. You may even forget we're wearing them. And then if we take them off, you know, we can if we take off the sunglasses or take off the filters, we we may we may now be able to see them, to, to look at them instead of looking through them. And so it's not functioning as a filter in the same way. So the, uh, this is the function or the, the process that happens as we recognize an attitude. It goes from being in the observing mind, kind of the way we're looking at experience, we're looking through that attitude or that perspective, to being something that can be seen in its own right, as an experience, as an object. And so as, it, as we make that shift or as, a, as a, an attitude becomes known, an unhelpful attitude becomes known, it no longer functions as a defilement. It's just another object. It's just another experience to be known. Oh, this is what anger is like. This is what greed is like. This is what frustration is like. It's, it's no longer quite got the power to um, drive our choices without our awareness. Now there are different, uh, I mentioned this in one of the meetings today, that you know, there's different capacities and different strengths of these um, um, unhelpful attitudes. I'll just use the word defilement today. You'll just know what I mean. <laughs> With these, when, when there's different strengths of these defilements, sometimes they are strongly conditioned. We've practiced them a lot. They're very habitual. And they've got a lot of momented, momentum to them. And our um, mindfulness may or may not have the strength to really meet, th- meet it equally. And so sometimes it may be that we can know that a, uh, a a form of reactivity is present in our mind, but not be able to take off the glasses and put them in front of us and say, "Oh, this is just anger." It's no like, "No, I know I'm angry, and I am really angry." <laughs> so in that in that case, we can know it as best we can. And sometimes I uh, I suggest that. Um, if you uh, become aware of a uh, of a reactive state of mind and see that you're caught by it in that way it's like recognize that to say okay yep i'm angry and i'm caught by it that's what's happening right now that begins to uh, again it, it helps to, to it helps the mind to actually acknowledge what's actually going on in the moment. And it, it, in acknowledging that we're caught by it, it, uh, it decouples us a little bit from the um, being fully caught by it. Because we know that we're caught. It's different than just being caught and being in being caught. And sometimes, you know, sometimes when we're caught by something, it's so powerful, it's so strong, we, you know, maybe notice a particular uh, attitude, uh, reactive attitude, and it's so strong, we go down the rabbit hole. And, you know, if the mindfulness isn't strong enough to meet a defilement, we need to use our strategies, our tools to help us step away from it. And so, partly, I reinforce this um, piece about, you know, noticing our attitude. So when we check our, when we check the attitude, quite often there's some kind of greed, aversion, or delusion present in our minds, quite often. And yet, you know, don't despair. The seeing of it has so much power. Again, it it takes it from being uh, a quality that is below the surface of our conscious awareness where it's choosing, deciding, acting for us to to being in the light, in the, the, um, we're able to see it so that it's not uh, underground making choices for us. Checking the attitude also, it it begins to help us really... uh, Begins to help us get familiar with what it means to watch the mind. It's a very simple, it's deceptively simple tool. And when I think about what the Buddha said, freedom, Defined freedom as the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, and the absence of delusion. And this simple tool is a way to begin to reveal greed, aversion, and delusion at work in our minds. And so we we begin to see some of the ways our minds work. We begin to get used to watching the mind. And we watch the mind in a very particular way which helps to lead us towards understanding those patterns that take us towards suffering. Help us to let go of them and move us more towards non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. So when we check the attitude, when we do this process of what's my relationship? Again, I've encouraged you to drop that in as a question on occasion, from time to time. Sometimes when we drop that in as a question, we may not see anything. Nothing in particular may be apparent. We check the attitude and it's like, if that's the case, there's no need to go looking for an attitude. No need to try to dig or figure anything out. That the question, what's the attitude, is more of a, it's like a little bit of investigation. It's just a little bit of orienting the mind to see, is there something available to be known that I had not previously been aware of? So we don't have to go digging if there's nothing that comes up or that's uh, seen obviously in that moment. We don't have to try to find anything. There's a couple of reasons why it might happen that there's nothing obvious and I'll mention those now. One is that um, the attitude may be very subtle. It may be one of the subtler forms of greed or aversion. Kind of not ones that we're that used to uh, orienting towards. So it could just be a very subtle kind of, of reactivity in the mind. Just a leaning in or trying to do something Another reason why we might not recognize an attitude is because, again, the wise attitude is sometimes a a flavor of mind that is not something we're so much attuned to. Wise attitude, calm, ease, peace, okayness, the feeling of okayness isn't something that we typically orient to. We typically orient to something feeling really good or really bad. But this, you know, just like no problem isn't necessarily something that kind of stands out in our minds. And so that's another reason why we may not notice an attitude. It may just simply be things are okay. You could try that on if you don't see an attitude. Is it, Are things okay? Do they seem okay right now? So sometimes the attitudes are are kind of subtle. The Buddha talked about mindfulness of mind in the Third Foundation of Mindfulness. And in that text, he described how we observe our minds. He said, if he he first of all he he said notice greed aversion and delusion It's a key piece of mindfulness of mind notice whether they're present and notice whether they're absent so he said if greed is present in the mind know that greed is present in the mind if aversion is present in the mind know that aversion is present in the mind again it's that very simple This is an object. This is what's happening right now. Aversion is present in the mind. In this particular sutta, the Buddha simply says, "No, it's present. He doesn't say, and then beat yourself up, judge yourself, tell yourself you're a bad person for having greed or aversion present in the mind. He doesn't say, try to do something to fix it or change it. He doesn't say, bring metta into the practice. He says, know it's there. Pointing to the power of the simple practice that we're doing here. Now again, you know, we always have to know our own minds and if we notice greed or aversion is present in the mind and we see that it's taking us down the garden path, it may be time to bring in the metta, but give yourself a chance to see if it's possible, oh, this is what it's like to be a human being that feels greed. It reminds me, Jane Baraz, James, James Baraz gives a uh, an instruction to help us. You know, he says this is something he did to help him kind of come to that place where it was just okay to notice that, oh, this is what greed is like. Oh, this is what aversion is like. He said that he um, he pretended that he was an alien and he had been given the assignment to um, go down onto earth and take up residence in a human being and his job was to report back to the mothership what is it like when human beings experience things and so greed arises oh this is what human beings feel when they feel greed report back to the mothership this is what it's like when they feel aversion and This is what it's like when they feel joy, when they feel happiness and bliss. Just that curiosity. This is a human being experiencing life. What is that experience? This is the uh, encouragement in the third foundation. No. greed is arising in the mind when greed is arising in the mind. He also points to the absence of, noticing the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is an important uh, highlight, especially for patterns that um, we tend to be caught by frequently we can recognize when those patterns are not there. We tend to frequently be caught by a depression or an anger or an aversion. Recognizing when it's not happening. So greed, aversion and delusion and the absence of greed, aversion and delusion are a huge part of what the Buddha is pointing to, when we can recognize greed, aversion, and delusion, and kind of as I said yesterday, I think, you know, uh, recognizing greed, aversion, and delusion in the mind, we feel the suffering of it. Our mind starts getting different information about what's, what is happening there. And typically with greed, you know, we're not paying attention. Oh, greed doesn't feel very good. We're thinking about what we're going to get by having the thing that we want. And so our minds are skipping over the actual experience of the moment. And so we explore, this is the experience of greed. This is greed present in me. And we feel, we recognize it's not conducive for well-being. So our mind starts getting good information about what greed and aversion and delusion, the impact it actually has on us. And likewise, with non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, our hearts begin to release. And there's a a deep recognition of, yes, this this is the way to well-being. A heart, like, relaxes as the grip of greed, aversion, and delusion release. So I wanna talk a little bit about greed and aversion. They're more obvious and subtle forms, just for a few minutes. And then I'd like to spend a little bit more time on delusion. So greed, there's the obvious forms of greed, the obvious wanting, the obvious having to have something, the feeling of that, uh, sometimes can feel like a, a magnetic pull towards something. So those are are kind of the familiar, strong forms of greed. This feels good, I want more of this, I want to keep this. This is the way it's supposed to be. Those kinds of thoughts happening in the mind around greed. Some more subtle flavors of greed can be just a kind of expectation, anticipation, a leaning in, excitement you now those are not as strong forms of greed but still they have a little bit of the mind kind of just not really landing here in this moment a little bit kind of tipped forward so noticing those noticing the experience of that they don't to me at least they, they, they don't have the strong feeling of constriction. Something like excitement doesn't have as much of a feeling of constriction, like I have to have something, but it's got an agitated quality to it. You know the mind is not settled, it's not rested. It's got it's, it's shaking. It's 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 agitated even subtler forms perhaps that of greed that Yeah, you know, these there's some forms of greed that i found at least supported my practice for a really long time wanting to know wanting to understand that you know, it's just a little bit of like Oh yeah, let's look at this. Let me put it under the microscope and figure it out. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's got a little bit of that excitement, a little bit of the wanting to know. Now, in my own experience around this kind of um, greed, you know, take care that you don't just uh, say something like, Wow, I really want to practice. And so I shouldn't practice because I want to practice. That's acting on greed, so I shouldn't do that. You know, that's not helpful. <laughs> so, you know, notice if there's that kind of, there's, there's maybe a little bit of the sense of, oh, yeah, there's a little bit of leaning towards the practice or, um, you know, in, uh, a wanting to know, a wanting to understand. Just notice it. And uh, something I sometimes say is, let suffering be a guide for us in terms of, do we investigate that as uh, as a a defilement at that point? So you know, for instance, if you are really interested, kind of diving into wanting to understand. Aversion. It's like that wanting to understand aversion is way less of a defilement than the aversion running amok. The aversion will have, you know, there's, there's, we, we feel, we really can feel the suffering of the aversion in that situation perhaps. And the wanting to understand it probably isn't experienced so much as suffering. And so you don't need to try to not have that kind of wanting. There's even one sutta where Ananda is expressing to, uh, to a nun. He says, you know, there's a form of craving that helps us overcome craving. And it's that craving for freedom. Freedom. the craving for understanding and wisdom that helps us overcome the craving for wanting to have what we want, to get rid of what we don't want. And so subtler forms of defilement help us at times to overcome the grosser forms of defilements, And yet, at some point in our practice, we find that some of the more obvious forms of greed or aversion, habitual forms that we've uh, been used to for our lives, they begin to fall away. And then we start perhaps beginning to feel the suffering of these subtler forms of greed. For me, this was uh, the case around um, a kind of, I was hooked to investigation it's kind of really, I a, a, a greed around investigation. My mind happens to be really natural doing investigation and it enjoys it, it has fun with it. And boy, it served me for a long time. I didn't feel that it was suffering for a long time. At some point though, I began to experience the pain of the wanting, it's like the, the, need, the need to know, it's, it's like it wasn't okay to not be able to pull these things apart and figure them out. And I felt the suffering of that subtler form of wanting. That's when I started working with that form of craving, that form, that subtler form of wanting. When I felt the suffering of it. Not just because I knew it was there, you know, we can, we can see in our minds, we can recognize, I knew that I had an attachment to investigation, but I didn't feel the suffering of it for a long time. It will show up at some point, and that's when we can start looking at it. And so, you know, these, the, the levels of craving in our mind get very subtle, And it's like each level, as as a level of craving falls away, a level of greed or aversion falls away, it may feel for a while like things are great. Because so much habitual or familiar reactivity is, is loosened and weakened. And we hang out in that space for a while and then the subtler forms start to show up we start to become more familiar with these uh, quieter ways that we push pull around our experience with aversion there are also more obvious and more subtle forms the uh, obvious forms of aversion you know run from aversion hatred um, rage dislike um, just the fear and just the kind of obvious not this don't want this more subtle perhaps is just a subtle sense of could be better don't like this and it's more like no it's like it's okay yeah it's okay it's like that tone right <laughs> yeah it's okay <laughs> but it's not it's okay it's it's got a, it's got an edge to it annoyance discontent sometimes boredom is a manifestation of a subtle form of aversion it's like yeah i can hang out here with this mm. Sometimes uh, a form of a, a subtler form of aversion or a subtle form of aversion takes the form, particularly in practice. Something like, um, if I were really being mindful, this unpleasant experience wouldn't be happening. Just a subtle sense that, uh, th- this cannot be right. This unpleasant experience cannot be what is supposed to be happening. I must be doing something wrong. It can be pretty subtle. I mean, sometimes that can be an obvious form, but it it can also be really subtle, just a a little bit of searching, like, you know, what should I be doing here? How can I fix this? And then delusion. Delusion is, of course, the hardest to see. There are different ways that delusion uh, functions in our minds, different kind of levels almost of delusion. The most obvious form of delusion is is really just a basically being non mindful being checked out, not knowing what's happening. Flavors of this are uncertainty, confusion, disconnection, restlessness, torpor, these states of mind that are um, dull, disconnected now. Many of these, this, this form of delusion, um, is often connected with states of mind in which we are habitually not mindful. I think I've mentioned this, you know, the, the um, sleepiness, spacing out, are states in which often we uh, are not mindful. And we think because of that habit of non-mindfulness, that inherently sleepiness, spacing out, dullness, are non-mindful. And so if that state is happening, if I'm spacing out, I have to fix that state in order to not have it so that I can be mindful. So we we have this, this view around many of these states that are You know the disconnected kind of states we think that they are inherently non mindful and yet it's not the case we can be aware of confusion in the mind we can be aware of sleepiness in the mind we can be aware of low energy of spacing out And in fact, in my own um, practice, the exploration of, instead of trying to fix or change those kinds of states, wher- which are habitually the disconnected states, instead of trying to fix or change them, instead of having the idea or the question, well, how is it possible to be mindful with this state? So spacing out happens. Is it possible or how might the mind, mindfulness be able to follow and be present for that state? It mostly takes curiosity to see this possibility and a letting go of the belief. I mean, the belief that it's not possible to be mindful in any of these states will make it not possible to be mindful in those states. And so, even just hearing this, if even just hearing this helps you to be curious about, wow, you know, okay, Andrea says it's possible to be mindful while spacing out. Let's see. Instead of trying to fix or change spacing out, let's see, you know, is it possible? What What might be... How might that work? Spacing out, in my experience, is a kind of a state of mind that pulls us away from sense experience. So, you know, if we've got the idea that being mindful means being connected with sense experience, that will be in the way of being aware of the mind as it pulls away from sense experience. So at one point I was exploring this. I recognized I had a kind of an agenda around being mindful. I was eating breakfast and my idea about being mindful was I'm supposed to pay attention to the sensations of eating. That's what being mindful while eating breakfast means. My mind had other ideas, other plans in mind. It it, uh, kept spacing out. I kept bringing the attention back saying, no, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what being mindful while eating breakfast means the mind kept spacing out. At some point it's like, okay, let's just see if we can follow this. Let's see if it's possible. And by just being curious about it, it actually wasn't that difficult. Just like, oh, okay, oh, the mind is kind of, ooh, it's hovering. It's disconnected from, but here it, here's the awareness. This is the practice of noticing, am I aware? Really helpful here. It's like, sleepy, am I aware? Yeah, I'm sleepy. Spaced out, am I aware? Yes, this feeling of being disconnected, pulled back from experience. That's what this state of mind is. In that particular instance, I was watching this and, you know, I fought it for so long. You know, I kept coming back. It's like, no, come back, come back, come back. And when I finally just watched the state, I watched the state get created. The mind hung out in that state for a little while. It was actually pleasant. And that's another thing I find about many of these, probably not all, but many of these um, uh, states of, Of delusion uh, where we're kind of disconnected or pulled back, they're often, they often can have a pleasant tone to them. And that may be partly what we get hooked to and lost in, is the pleasant quality of that experience. And so I kind of rested in that place, felt the pleasantness of it, felt the rest of it. It was very peaceful to be in that space. It was restful. It was peaceful. With after about 30 seconds of being there, it was like phew, that, that state, it was like the mist cleared. And I was sitting, experiencing the seeing and the hearing and the touching of the utensils and the eating of breakfast. And so in that coming out, you know, as, as I saw that, state of mind, kind of clear. I understood that what was going on there was that the mind was tired and needed to rest. And I had been fighting that. I had been doing, 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 actually further exhausting the mind by an agenda that I had about what I was supposed to be doing. And when I allowed the mind to do its thing, watched it stayed present for it it lasted about 30 seconds i was fully present for all of it i watched it disappear and then it was amazing i was actually quite more alert more present because the mind had gotten some rest and just had taken a little bit of a break from all of that doing all of that work This is one area of delusion where we kind of check out. We, we are non-mindful. Then there's a whole terrain of delusion where um, the delusion is not keeping us from being aware, but it is skewing how we are aware. And this is a more insidious form of delusion. There are different ways this comes into play in our experience. And there's some more along the personal side or the, uh, the views, the opinions, the uh, filters, the ideas, the agendas that we each personally carry through our lives because of our conditioning from our families, from our cultures. And these uh, views that we hold are often so... Um, entrenched, that we don't even know we have them, we don't know we're carrying them, we're immersed in a view, it's like everything in our lives has taught us, this is the view of how things are, and so we don't see it as a view, it's just, this is the way things are, this is how things are. with that view, when we're immersed in that kind of view, it's hard to see information to the contrary. Instead, what our minds do is confirm as we, as we uh, look at our experience. So this is the classic filters, right? We're looking at our experience through a filter. And because we're looking at experience through a filter, we tend to see information that confirms that filter. And we don't see information that doesn't confirm that filter. So this happens a lot in our lives. Beliefs about who we are, what we're capable of. Beliefs about other people. These beliefs and views about people, other people, are a source of so much of the pain that's happening in the world right now. The uh, perspective of race, the view of race meaning something about somebody, just the, the examples of police officers killing a man when he goes to pull his wallet out of his, because the, the, the police officer is seeing the person not as a person but through this filter of race and what they, that person believes about race so much suffering in our world is because of these views that we hold you know the kind of a belief, the cultural view of this country is America's the land of opportunity. If you work hard enough you'll be able to live your dream. Believing that, not seeing that that as a view is perhaps uh, a way that a certain group of the culture can navigate society and not another group so that believing that view can create the the sense or the, the delusion really of white privilege that I have what I have because I've worked hard And if somebody else doesn't have what they have, it means they're not working hard. It's not seeing, essentially, the uh, the barriers that are in place for people of color. So these views, these views operate in our practice, in our lives, in our relationships, in our worlds, in our cultures, in our communities. And they are such a source of suffering. So it's important, what's important is to begin to be curious about what views are at work, what views are operating. It's unlikely that we will be able to simply turn a switch on a belief and say, oh, I'll stop believing that because I see either it's not useful or it's not true. You know, even seeing a belief is not true is not often enough to have our mind stop believing it because it's so ingrained and so entrenched. And so it's really important to begin to recognize what views are at play And kind of also I find a really helpful exploration, two pieces in our practice, uh, really useful to check in from time to time, what am I believing right now? Or what what view is happening, what's being believed right now? And then how much do I believe it? sometimes it's like it's like belief has different levels of potency so for instance for myself uh one view that i had about myself that was frequent came up a lot was that i was um a failure i it was self-hatred a view that i was no good and uh that thought would come up. There'd be that that belief arising or that thought would arise. And sometimes I would see it and it would be like, yeah, that's just a thought. I don't even believe it, but I see that the thought is there. Sometimes I would see it and really feel it's like the whole system would collapse. It's like, yeah, boy, I really believe that thought right now. So recognizing the belief, the view, and how much it is believed, the the level of belief can change. So, so a thought comes up. Sometimes it is just a thought. I'm a failure. I'm no good. It's like okay, there's that thought, and I'm believing it. That's what's happening right now. With with you know beliefs and views, it's unlikely we'll be able to say, oh, oh, I'm a failure. That's not true. Let me feel good about myself right now. You know, minds don't work that way. But a mind can recognize, oh, what's happening right now is that's being believed. And that's in alignment with what's actually going on, but it also creates a little bit of a gap of... uh seeing that it is a belief as opposed to absolute truth about reality. The mind begins to understand it is a belief. And we can we can explore this also in our cultural beliefs, our cultural uh, views couple of other ways. Um, you know, even just something as simple as having an agenda can create a filter on our experience. We have an agenda, we're doing something, and we, um, because of that agenda, we tend to uh, orient and so it's called selective attention in psychological terms when we have an agenda we're trying to do a particular activity or task our mind will select out of the field the relevant information to do that task and it correspondingly ignores may not even see other information This is a natural function of mind that it's kind of, in a way, it helps us to be able to do our tasks. It's like we have an agenda, we're doing something. It's like we've got this process in our mind that helps us orient to, oh, this is the important stuff here. Let me pay attention to that while I'm doing that. And so it's a a function of our minds that, that can serve us as we're doing something and focusing on something. But what is not so helpful is the mind's belief that we uh, we are always seeing everything. And there was a study, many of you have heard this, I've told this story in many talks, uh, about people having uh, uh, an agenda while watching a video of seeing people pass a basketball between pe- players on a court. And uh, during that, they were asked, their task was, so the agenda, a simple agenda, count the number of times the basketball passes between the players in the white shirts. So they were able to do that task, able to report the answer correctly. Many of them did not see that there was a person in a gorilla suit that walked out into the middle of the basketball court and danced around for a while and then walked off. Now that's not necessarily too surprising because of that focused attention. But where the delusion comes into play, and this is what's really kind of scary, is that when people were told, you know, some people kind of said, was there like a gorilla in that video? What was that? And others, you know, didn't see anything. And when they played the video back to some of the people, you know, some some of the people would just say, wow, I just did not see that. Some group of the people some pretty large number, something like 30%, said, that's got to be a different video. I would have noticed the gorilla. Now that is delusion. You know, that in the face of evidence to the contrary, you believe your own sense experience and this is, this is what's so potent. It's like we believe our sense experience to be an accurate representation of reality. A recording as if we were cameras and microphones, recording experience and just play it back. That is not the way our minds work. And to believe otherwise is delusion. And so this is a, a really important recognition. Just this is part of the way our minds function becoming aware that when we're carrying even something as simple as an agenda, we do not see everything that's out there. That can really help us to broaden our perspective on different views and opinions. So this... You know, the question that I've in, been encouraging, uh, you know, what else is happening? You know this can help us to to break through these filters that you know we habitually, it's like our minds orient to seeing certain things in experience. It's hard to see things that we are not looking for. And yet we can, through this, that question of what else is happening kind of shakes up the mind a little bit shakes up that delusion that i'm seeing everything already it's like something what else is here what else is here what else might be available to be known that can help cut through that that form of delusion a little bit and then there are the kind of more fundamental foundational kinds of delusions that we all share as human beings human distortions, that we tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is unreliable as a source of lasting happiness to be reliable. And we tend to take what is not self to be self. Because of that distorted perception, very familiar distorted perception, because we take things to be reliable, permanent. We tend to cling to them. It is the very belief underlying... The, I mean, the belief that there is a permanent, reliable possibility out there is the very uh, a belief or delusion that fuels greed and aversion. Greed is the wanting of something, you know, something's out there, we like it, it's pleasant, we want it. The delusion embedded in greed is the belief that having that is what's going to make me happy. Likewise for aversion. The aversion itself is the separation, the wanting to push away. The delusion that underlies it is the belief that separating is what's going to make me happy. And so these These kind of fundamental foundational delusions are like the engine that greed and aversion spring from. And so we can begin to be curious about, you know again, not so much not so much um trying to stop ourselves from taking things to be permanent and reliable, but again, orient to okay, this is what the mind is doing right now. Okay, the mind is. When it it's like the mind is taking that to be solid, we'll start looking at it. Is it really solid? How long does it last? When something appears long lasting, unchanging, how long does it really last? We do this so much with mind states. You know, depression arises one morning on retreat. And it's like, oh, this is what the rest of the retreat's gonna be like imputing a long-lastingness to it. So notice that. Notice that imputation of, if not total permanence, a kind of a, a lingering quality to it. And be curious, You know, how long does it actually last? The very imputing of permanence is probably going to keep the ball rolling. My mind did this with uh, miserableness I was pretty miserable before I started practicing, and uh, I die I was real. I was good at being miserable, and I really, I knew I was a miserable person. And uh, you know, every now and then I would notice that I was happy, but you know, the mind would do something like, "Well, yeah, I'm happy now, but what I really know is that I'm a miserable person." This happiness isn't gonna last, but that miserableness, it's gonna last, it's gonna keep going. Basically, reinforcing that miserableness. And so, being curious about the actual, how long do these things actually last? I said earlier, noticing the absence, noticing the presence and absence of states of mind. As we start to do that, as we look at when something disappears, it begins to poke holes. It can, if we're not jumping on it and saying, "Oh, but what I really know is I'm a miserable person." If, if in that moment I had been able to recognize, "Oh, miserableness is not here. Happiness is present right now. Oh, that's what's happening right now," and not kind of imputed some uh, reality or or essence to the miserableness, there would have been more of a possibility of weakening and being, seeing that, well, actually, I must not be a miserable person because miserableness doesn't exist right now. Miserableness is a state that arises and passes away. So begin a- investigating what appears solid, long-lasting. How long does it really last? What appears reliable? Where are we hanging our hats? Where do we think we will find happiness? Oh, if I just get to that peaceful state in meditation, that's what will make me happy. What appears reliable? How how reliable is it? Again, coming back to things are unreliable because they are impermanent. So we can begin to investigate them. How, How stable are they? How reliable are they? And what am I taking to be self? What, what am I taking to be me, mine, I? Just beginning to be curious about these tendencies that we have to impute solidity, reliability, self to experience. We study these experiences and the studying of them with this curiosity about, well, what's actually happening? Let me see what it really is to have this sense of self. We'll watch one sense of self come, and then suddenly some other thing happened, and it's like a whole new sense of self arises, and it's like, wow, that one has nothing to do with that one. What happened? And we see that there's not an essence to a sense of self. It's a conditioned arising based on who we're talking to, what we're thinking about. So we begin to see this. So I talk about delusion particularly because it is so hard to see. We are swimming in delusion. And yet, these, some simple things, I'll I'll rename them now, you know. Um, Being curious about states in which we think it's not possible to be mindful. Mindfulness can go anywhere. Just be curious about that? How might it be possible for mindfulness to infiltrate those checked out states, those disconnected states? Views, beliefs. Get curious about what beliefs are operating for yourself. How much they're being believed? How strong is the belief? And being curious about what might not be being seen in the moment. What else is happening right now? What might I be missing right now? And being curious about what we take to be solid, reliable, and I, me, or mine beginning that investigation. Now let's just sit for a moment.